Welcome to the Always On Podcast. This is Duncan McPherson, your host. And on this podcast, our objective is to enable our audience, which are high caliber fee-for-service professionals, to always be working on their business and on themselves personally and professionally. And to that end, on today's podcast, I had a very in-depth conversation with Kevin Bishop. You might know Kevin is a performance coach at First Trust Portfolios. He's been doing this for a long time at a very high level. And in this episode, we talked about the art and science of practice management, what it means to shift from advisor with technical ability to CEO running a business like a business, creating culture, engaging your team, and elevating the client experience. So I hope you enjoy that. If you like this podcast, please like and share and tell your colleagues. And if you have any ideas or themes and topics you'd like to hear on this podcast in the future, just let us know. Thanks for listening. Okay, here we are. Very excited, uh, not just for those of you listening in, but frankly, for myself, because I always get so much out of these conversations. Speaking with Kevin Bishop, who is a performance coach at the highest level for teams in the fee-for-service financial services business, works with First Trust, with the uh, team headed up by Chris Jepson. Kevin, thank you again very much for being here. Yeah, happy to be here. Congratulations on the release of the book. Fantastic. Yeah, thank you. I appreciate that. And of course, you had so much input on that as we put that together. So that as well, uh, I appreciate. I want to start off by just talking about why I think I get so much out of this relationship, because we're not the same people. I mean, philosophically, we see the world the same way, but you just have such a phenomenal view on, well, I guess what I would call the empirical side of practice management and business development. I tend to be more anecdotal. I like telling stories and I like talking about scenarios, all of which was proven and actionable. But I just keep coming back to the importance of the art and science of what it means to play at the highest level. So what I want to do is I want to mesh together some of the core areas that the practice management index that we've developed uh, reveals, both in terms of the opportunity gaps, but also the focus areas. And I want to connect that to a typical day in your life and what your process reveals. Because again, your, your reach has been incredible. How many teams have you consulted with in your career? Do you, do you know that number? It's well into the thousands. Um, yeah. just, just since I've been at First Trust, the number is like 1,550 or 1,600 different teams in the last five years in some capacity. Some of that is ongoing coaching. Some of that is episodic. Uh, one-off interactions, but it's the space that is ever-changing, but there are, there are fundamentals that need to be in place. And I find um, when you mention art and science between the two of us, we have this kind of yin and yang 
How do we keep our feng shui? We keep everything in balance between the two of us. I just find myself going back to thematically, you know, what does the data say? What do the numbers say? Let's, let's be grounded in, in metrics. But at the same time, we talk about things that aren't necessarily metric driven. Let's, let's keep it simple, right? Let's, let's figure out the, the basics, the, the core and figure out, you know, how do we attack this at, at the most fundamental level so that we can enhance something that we're doing? We can make adjustments or you know, we, we can stop doing certain things that aren't productive activities because simple mechanisms are easier to maintain, right? If, if, we, can, if we can break things down, that's part of the beauty of the, the Tesla, for example, right? 20,000 fewer parts. Like just, just contemplate that for a minute. It, you have, a combustion engine versus a Tesla right next to each other. 20,000 fewer parts. Like that just, that just makes sense. Like I can see why that would be easier to maintain from a lot of angles. And so I just love trying to help teams dissect what they've got going on, find ways where uh, we can remove complexity. Right? Uh, my, my colleague, Chris Still, I heard him say a couple months ago, you can't add simplicity to something, right? The actual process is we've got to remove complexity. We've got to remove the, the extraneous motion from a golf swing, for example, or, or you love to play pickleball, a good instructor will, will tell you, hey, there's some things, there's some movements in your, in your body, in your swing that aren't productive. They're based out of habit, but let's, let's get the extraneous extra motion out because with the extra motion, comes additional opportunity for error. So that's, that's just my bent. It, it's not necessarily a fit for everyone, but I find that it, it helps advisors and teams really focus on a finite number of improvements that we can make at a time and get more bang for their buck. Well, great point out of the gate in terms of who this is a good fit for. I find that there are a very high caliber people who respect and are drawn to this because they know it's a gap. It's an unmet need in their business. And then they make the connection that, okay, I'm very process driven when it comes to my technical ability, but maybe lacking in some of the areas that are becoming more important, practice management, relationship management. I will say, first of all, I appreciate the pickleball reference because one little, (laughs) insight that I've had is when you get to a point where you find another gear, you're shifting your mindset from just trying to get the ball in versus putting it in a specific spot. That is a next level breakthrough that comes from coaching. You're not going to figure that out on your own. And then the reinforcement of having another set of eyes, uh, not only put that concept on your, on your, you know, in your mind, but also helping bring it to life. That, that's been a profound breakthrough. I love the Tesla analogy and that 20,000 fewer parts. You one up, one up me on the analogy right out of the gate. I was actually, I think about you all the time when I'm involved in my hockey pool with my youngest son, which has been going on for several years. I just adore that whole uh, relationship, especially in that area. And uh, But what's interesting is, He's all metrics, all analytics, you know, plus minus uh, puck possession. Like it's incredible how his brain works on those analytics. I'm the art. I'm the wily veteran. I go by feel. But what's amazing is 
the mutual respect for the fact that we're different people with a different view and it comes together. There's a multiplier there. And I think that's what you see in your interactions with the teams that you're focusing on. So what I'd like to do, a bit of a dual track, Kevin, I want everybody to understand what it looks like to engage you, how you help somebody get clear, and then how they translate that clarity into results. And I'm going to try to frame it around the 18 focus areas within the practice management index. Uh, Obviously, can't focus on all 18, but I've got a couple here that I've identified. So why don't you launch in and just paint a picture for how a team will connect with you and, and, and the progression that you work them through to help them get clear on, on some of their gaps and how to address yeah. them. If you can start there. Yeah. So first off, since I'm at First Trust, all the work that I do is with advisors who are engaging First Trust portfolios as part of their set of portfolio solutions. And there's really no constraint or, or guideline in terms of size of team, type of team. Um, our, my bias is if they're a good client of our firm, if, if they've identified First Trust as a strategic partner, we want to help them any way that we can. Um, w- w- candidly, we've got advisors who have $40 million books, but they put a disproportionate amount of that with First Trust. I, I want to help them. Right? We've got teams that are multi-billion dollar teams. And they have some good business with First Trust. We want to help everybody. We, we, we believe at the core that the advisor is at the, at the center, at the most critical link in the chain in our industry, because they're the ones that are putting their faces in front of clients. And so what typically happens is I will get a request from our field saying, hey, we've got this team that's wrestling with a set of issues, or, or they've just come together, or maybe they've just disbanded, or they've changed firms. There's some catalyst on their side, which is a, is a cue for me that they're right for some conversation, right? So something is happening on their side, which is, which is causing them to want to be interested in either enhancing the business, taking it to the next level, or solving a significant challenge. So the, the, the first thing, the very first thing that we do is we collect data on them. We just ask them to fill out a simple profile sheet no more than a page. We're going to look at assets, revenues, number of households, how many on the team, what roles are people in. And then we're going to ask them, where do you feel like you're having success? Tell us what's working. What are you proud of? Tell us where you're struggling, some things that you, you feel like you need to enhance, and then get specific with the topic that you want to discuss. And all that does for, for me, essentially, is it, it shortens the the runway in terms of being able to to diagnose some of what's going on because I'm getting this information ahead of time. And then we'll jump on the phone and and it's a conversation or we'll jump on a, a Zoom or a WebEx and it's a conversation. And what I find is that after doing this for, for 18 years, right, more often than not, I can look at that profile form. I can look at the data and I, I already know a good chunk of what's going on just because what's inside of the data. I can see how many advisors they have versus how many staff. So I know, do they have the right balance between resources? Are they advisor heavy? Are they staff heavy? 
I can look at the, the revenue that's coming off of the asset base and I can figure out, hey, is there untapped potential inside of this business? Because we know where all of these same metrics sit with the top performing teams. I can look at their revenue per client. What's the average size of household? And over the years, you, you have a feel for how the business is running based upon the average quality of the client. I can look at the number of clients and households per advisor, per team member. And I already have essentially a, a gauge of where they're at from a bandwidth perspective. Like I know, hey, are, are they running hot because of where the capacity metrics sit? Or do they actually have margin in their day to be able to work on the business? And so we will we'll get on this initial conversation. And my job is, is just to listen just to just to to truly be interested in in what's going on i'm not too worried about them knowing about me and and first trust and all the great things that we can bring to the table i really want to listen and 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 i'm i'm listening for the message behind the message how do they refer to how do they talk about their staff what's the bent are they are they speaking of the team as in you know incredible resources in, you know it, vital part of what we're doing for clients or are they viewing the staff as that's the offloading paddock for tasks that they don't really want to do and in replaceable oh the firm controls staffing etc so trying to trying to understand really what's going on and behind what they're telling me and I'm, I'm working to make sure that what i'm hearing what i'm assessing is lining up with with the story that's in the in the metrics right what does the data say? And from there, it's, it's diagnosing you know, what truly are the problem areas. And it's, it's different a lot of times, but more often than not, we're, we're, we're breaking it down. And what we're finding is one, they don't have capacity. They haven't effectively managed capacity, which is incredibly critical in a business that's changing as fast as the business that we're in. Second is they, they are not as structured and disciplined as they should be from a value delivery standpoint. We'll hear them say things like, oh, yeah, we have A's and B's and C's. But then when we ask them to describe, hey, what's the difference between what an A gets and a B gets, it quickly breaks down into, well, everybody pretty much receives the same client experience, which tells me that it was a labeling exercise. So then we start to dialogue around, well, what's the average revenue per client that your A pays versus the average C? And they start to see this massive discrepancy in the economic contributions that clients are making to the business. And then they're squaring that with, we're reactive, we don't have enough time. And oh, by the way, where is the time going? The time is going to the clients that are the noisy clients, the squeaky wheels. And then they, they start to realize, hey, we're upside down in this thing. Right? We're upside down because we've got too many resources focused on the, the problems and we don't have our best and brightest resources and our time focused on the biggest opportunities, right? which is an incredible organizational principle, by the way. Put your best and brightest on your biggest opportunities, not on your biggest problems. So the biggest opportunities are, hey, let's, let's go deeper with these clients that have, to use your language, Duncan, fully empowered us. Let's go deeper with the clients who, who truly understand and appreciate what it is that we do because they are the, 
they're the best resource for our business to to deliver that same value to people in their circle of influence. So the, the process starts with the data, it starts with the interview, and then it's just a matter of helping them better understand what they really should be doing. And there's a, a lot of them understand what they could be doing because they read it all the time, they read different practice management books, they watch different podcasts, and there's no shortage of strategies that they could pursue. The real question is for, for this team, what should you be doing? Let's, let's sift through the coulds and let's get it down to the shoulds. And the shoulds, what drives the should is generally three things. Number one, what's your vision of, of what you want to build? That should be additive and, and informative to the should. The should should be, you know, what, is the, what does the data say? about how the business should look? What do the the fundamentals say about how the health of the business and what it looks like? And then the other should is, let's not reinvent the wheel. Let's look at what others have proven, done and proven our best practices. And let's bring those three together, your vision, what's the data say, what are the best practices? And let's break it down into a, a finite number of objectives and, and create lists, you know, a, a work order or a project management plan that doesn't have 71 items on it, right? It doesn't even have 17 items to get started. It's like, let's go do these one or two things. And the reason that's so critical is because many of them, and you know this, many of them are stuck in this trial, try fail loop or, or maybe try and even have a little bit of success and but then it gets uncomfortable it gets messy we don't know how to figure all this stuff out so we just we revert back right and we try a little bit of something then we revert back and they develop the wrong belief system right because in that in that instance the belief system isn't reinforced the belief system is actually uh, inhibited because the number one way to improve your belief system called Mastery Experience. This isn't my work. This is a guy named Albert Bandera. He's the world's leading researcher in the area of self-efficacy. The number one way to improve your belief system is to say that you're going to do something and then do it. Second behind that is peer modeling, meaning, oh, I see somebody in a similar scenario who says they're going to do something. They go and do it. That gives me the belief that I can actually do that as well. That's secondary. The most powerful way to improve your belief system is to say you're going to do something and then do it. Right? It's like when, you're, when a toddler's learning to walk. They try it. They go down. They take a tumble. They've got you know, knocks on their forehead. The best thing for them is to get up and then to, to take that step. And then that gives them the belief to take the next step. Right? And then the belief that, oh, I, could, I can put these individual steps together and I can actually start to create some movement. I can start to create some motion. So that's probably more than what you wanted on the intro. But in terms of, of how I've been able to be effective with advisors and teams, that's, that's been the process that I've used to really try to get behind the, the initial screen, kind of the initial um, positioning of, of where they're at and, and truly try to uncover what's, you know, what's going on. Well, <clears throat> you covered a lot of ground 
<clears throat> and I think I can imagine somebody listening in, it's probably validating saying, yeah, this is next level. This is very thought provoking, but to your point, not about pep talks, more about sustainable uh, deployment over the long haul. I took copious notes. I want to come back to your process around fit. So it starts with, okay, it's reciprocal. You've got people who have immense respect for first trust. So they've earned the right to access uh, your value. So it's, it's very much rooted. It's respectful, but the respect has to go both ways. So part of your fit process is to confirm the self-motivation that you don't want it more than somebody else. Because a lot of people have an awareness that I need to do some things, make some adjustments, but could, should, right? That dynamic. What I love is how you ease somebody in because somebody listening to you could go, oh my gosh, there's, there's so much to think about and consider. But your profile page demystifies the fact that you're not going to dump the whole load on them out of the gate because you don't want somebody to look at it and go, oh my gosh, this just seems like work. I'm just going to revert to the status quo. You ease them in to, to get themselves into a pattern of awareness, uh, relevance, and then implementation. That, that, that is, a, I'm sure that was deliberate. You figured that out over time, over the, uh, the many yeah. years. Sure. Yeah. And I, and I, I, w- I would love for them all to succeed, right? But it doesn't matter how bad I want it. I'm not on the team. I don't, I don't get to do the heavy lifting. I'm not in front of their client relationships. And, and I've found that a lot of, it, it's easy to say that you want to build a better business. Very easy thing to say. Like there's a much smaller segment of people who, who say, I want that and I am committed to doing what needs to be done to get there. And, and, and that's the population that I'm, that I'm searching for in terms of that's the population that I, that I want to help. And, and if I could add another layer to that, yeah. the, the, the engagements, and I know that you know this as well, the, the engagements the ones that are really exciting for me and really rewarding are the ones where the advisors are saying, yeah, we really want this, but we really want it for our team because we know what that's going to do for not, not just for our clients, but what it's going to do for our team, right? We're, our team is going to have meaningful, rewarding work, meaningful relationships. We're going to make meaningful commitments to clients and to our community. And, Yes, we will be well compensated for that, right? but that's not what's driving their desire. Their desire truly is, you know, at the end of the day, this is about everybody waking up in the morning and saying, no, I don't have to go to work today. I, I get to go to work today. Um, I, I get to go help clients do amazing things. They're working hard to to drive income, to build assets, to build a business, to, to be involved in their community. And we are so blessed as a team that, that, that we get to go and help them do that work. We get to be an, an integral part of them making the impact that they want to make. 
the, the, the engagements that are the, the least interesting from my perspective are the advisor who says, well, I, I just, you know, I'm at two and a half million. I want to get 5 million of production because I want, I want to be one of the biggest in ABC broker dealer or what have you. To me, that's like, yeah, we can help you. But at the end of the day, I, I don't, I don't want to look back on my career and say, I helped a bunch of advisors in an industry just go make a bunch of money, a ton of money. There's not a lot of, yeah. actually, there's about zero personal joy and satisfaction in that statement. It's actually probably negative joy. I don't even know how to, to quantify that. But I, I want to say, hey, I, I had the great fortune of working with incredible teams that that they built incredible teams. They built incredible businesses and they made a mark on their community. They made a mark on their clients. They, they solved real challenges for real people. And that's, that's the fun part for me. And I know, I know you feel the same way about, about the industry. And, and, okay. and the it's, it's such a profound with. point. And it's something that I don't even think I fully understood until the last couple of years. You know, yesterday I was speaking with Chris and we were talking about what it means to go from advisor with technical ability to CEO who takes a panoramic view on running a business like a business. And you're right. It starts off there very enlightened. Yes, there's the quantitative, but the qualitative, there are people that have so much personal fulfillment that comes out of the fact that engaging the team and working on the business is glue. It gels the chemistry and gives people added purpose because they're not transacting and grinding and reacting all the time. They're actually engineering something. That is incredibly rewarding. And, you know, I love hearing people talk about, okay, I went from this number to this number. That was great. But at the end of the day, it's still a means to an end. You think about relationship management, the enlightened financial professional says, I'm managing money, I'm managing a business, but I'm managing people. And that has layers. I'm managing my clients and I'm managing my team. And, and I've got this HR hat on now where I'm really focusing on the career ladder and the fulfillment that somebody gets from being part of our community. Now, with that said, I want to hit on something because when I heard you with your intro painting the picture about your process, you touched on several of the 18 focus areas within the practice management index. The one that really got my attention was when you talked about capacity. Mm-hmm. Now, so I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to plant a seed on a question that I want you to consider, but then I want to make a point. The concept of a financial professional getting their head around automating, adding automation to relationships, allocation of relationships to others within the bench, and potentially disassociation from clients that are not a good fit. I I sometimes have to stop myself from saying, what about this don't you get when, when somebody either doesn't respond the way I hope they will, or they push back? I, I, when I say to somebody, you've got too many clients, you've got too many relationships, and 
I get the sense that you've got some relationships with people who <clears throat> they're, they're not balanced. And what I mean by that, Kevin, is yeah. they want success from you more, way more than they want success for you. Like success from you means give me a result. Okay. And you're going to live and die by that sword. Okay. Fair enough. That's an expectation. I'm going to help you grow your net worth. But the ideal client, they want success for you. Like they're, they're actually concerned about your well-being, your achievements, your fulfillment. So, so, so back to the question, why is there pushback on the automation allocation and disassociation? What, what are some of your observations around that? And then preventative and then on the other side of it, what are some of the outcomes for people who actually say, you know what, I'm going to do it. Let's, let's start there. Yeah. So on the disassociation, the, the biggest resistance point there is they have a scarcity mentality, right? They're, they, they don't, they're holding on to everything that they've accumulated because they're not necessarily confident enough in their ability to do more with less. And the, the industry, the, the way that they've been brought up in the industry has always been more is better, more assets, more assets, go get assets, build a business, create critical mass, network. I often hear them say, you know, when I was younger, I take anybody that could fog a mirror, right? And it's just this, the, the industry has, has always been around quantity of assets, quantity of clients. And so that, that gets ingrained early on. And then they get to a point where they're concerned about relationship risk. Hey, if I, if I disassociate from this individual, they could go out into the marketplace and tell seven other people that we quote unquote fired them. And the, the implications of that are drastic and we, we just could never do that. Over the years, I've kept informal statistics. I'll ask advisors, hey, for every 100 clients that you have successfully disengaged, how many uncomfortable conversations have you had? How many times has it backfired on you? And the number, my number, not scientifically calculated, is they will tell me I had one uncomfortable, you know, kind of one semi-uncomfortable conversation. So it's, it's one or two somewhat uncomfortable conversations out of 100. So that means that 98% of the conversations the clients went on, went on their way. If it's, if it's handled professionally, if there's clear communication, right? If you, if you've found a way to, to truly get them to a, a provider that could be a, a better fit for what they need, nine, what does that say about how much they value the relationship? If 98% of them were able, are going away without a peep, it says that they didn't really, they didn't really value what you did. This is, this is a very powerful point you're making. I think people need to consider both sides of the coin. Like scarcity, there's two perspectives there. There's the lens of the client and 
There's your lens. Your lens is, yeah, maybe there's some fear, like a, more clients, there's a safety net there of diversification. But with diversification can come dilution, where that safety net becomes a bit of a hammock of complacency, and it's just spreading out your allocation of effort. The client's lens, like professional scarcity, you want every single client to have a very meaningful appreciation for a sense of belonging. Like I belong in this community. My advisors, I'm not a number. They're not trying to focus on how big they can get. It's how small they can stay, which means I'm going to share this with the right people. I think that's a very important takeaway about both sides of what scarcity means. Yeah. There's, there's also two things that I bump into fairly routinely, which are big red flags from when I hear an advisor say one of these two things. Number one is when they, when they ask me the question, they, they listen to our positioning. Uh, they listen to the process about growing down, you know, working with a smaller number of higher quality relationships. And if they ask me, well, that feels risky or doesn't that introduce too much risk to have these large client relationships where if I lost one of my large clients, it's now a disproportionate amount of my revenue stream. That's a telltale sign for me that we've got to work on this individual's mindset, right? Because they're just, they're, they're, they're coming at it from a, a place of fear, right? Or what if we were to lose them? And, and so my, my viewpoint on that is, hey, what you need to understand is we can get you to a point where you're bringing on those relationships you know, anywhere from eight to 12 of those new high value relationships per year. And the rhythm of those acquisitions is such that you're not even going to worry for a moment about losing one because there's going to be so much momentum and energy because you're now, you're now replicating the, the portion of your business where clients do truly value and appreciate you. And, and you're going to be driving more revenue from that segment. So that's, that's the first the first red side, and, the red flag. And, and the fulfillment around going deeper into a relationship where the complexity of needs now and evolving in the future bring out a, a, a deeper sense of uh, uh, purpose and fulfillment for the team. Yeah, and there's, there's another layer on top of this. Like if, if, you're, if you're not focused on clients that have complexity, then they don't need a complex solution, right? If they need a complex solution, economically, what's best for them? It's, it's, they're going to be part of the robo world. They're going to be part of the, the commoditized side of this business. If you're not finding people that have complex needs where you can use your, your process, your team to go deeper and truly add value, and all you're doing is bumping into the, the mass affluent who need a portfolio and just need to keep saving, that's a that's a painful space to compete in because you you they don't have a set of needs that really drives drives towards what you've built and what you've constructed. Um, so that's that's another fascinating side of that is to think okay if I if I'm not moving in that direction if I'm not getting to more more opportunities where there is a more complex situation I'm actually I have less opportunity to differentiate myself. 
because I don't get to, I don't get to show them all of the really cool stuff that we can do if they don't necessarily have that set of needs. But that's, that's even a little bit of kind of a brain bending thing. Uh, when I start to think about it, and I could see your facial expression too. It's like, they, there's something there. Okay. So, so um, what is the sweet spot between concentra- concentration risk and dilution risk? Dilution risk is I'm managing too many relationships and there's opportunity that is, is not engaging with us and it's undermining us in ways. And then on the other side is concentration yep. risk. I don't have the safety net of no- strength and numbers. What is the sweet spot? Well, the, the data would tell you that the sweet spot for a solo practitioner is a business that you're handling about 60 to 65 relationships per resource. So if you're a, a solo practitioner with one full-time support person, that sweet spot's about 130-ish relationships, right? And I, I even like to err on the, the more conservative side of that. So it's like 100 relationships. Okay? The team number is about 40 to 45 relationships per resource. And so this is a great example where we can mix art and science because we're trying to feel out what is the optimal. Well, let's just go to what the data says. And the data says for top performing teams that are doing less than 5 million, they handle 42 relationships per resource on their team. So now we just reverse engineer the math and we say, okay, I've got two advisors, three uh, non-advisors. So I've got a five person team five times 40 is about 200, right? That's, that's the reasonable range. I have yet to bump into an advisor. Now you'll have to tell me if this is true for you as well, Duncan. I've yet to bump into an advisor who said, I overdid it when I grew down. Like, like I, I went too deep with too few. I have yet to ever bump into anybody. I'm 18 years in, you've got more, you've got more, uh, runway behind you than I do. So I'd be interested to know, have you ever bumped into an advisor who said, uh, we, we overdid it? That is, I don't think I can say there's one person. Now there have been unintended consequences, but sure. most of them have had silver linings associated with them, which means yeah. They grew down and then their referability with the right people got amplified and then they got big again, but yep. they, they had the bench strength. They had the automation and the processes in place. And, uh, but again, because of the quality of the client and the complexity of needs, the fulfillment was amplified. Um, can we, can we just real quickly, can I just touch on the second one? It'll be a much shorter yes. uh, example. The other example is I'll bump into teams who will say, well, yeah, we know our numbers are high, but we've got, you know, 250 relationships. So we don't ever talk to. And, and, and part of it's like, Hey, this isn't a, they, they position that statement as, well, this isn't problematic for our business. And I will just subtly push back. I'll say, so let me make sure I understand this correctly. You've got 250 people out in your community who if when asked about who their advisor is, there's a chance that they're going to say, oh yeah, Kevin Bishop's our advisor, but we never really hear from him. Like, how is that helpful in any way, shape or form? Well, you just, I I wrote down, does professional scarcity impact your branding? And you're answering the question, right? With that example. Yeah, it's negative. 
Yeah. And, and, and that, that person just pulled the rug out from under you, right? Just instantly. Oh yeah, they're our advisor, but we never hear from them. Oh, let me scratch them off of my list of people to potentially investigate as my future advisor. A customized podcast can add credibility and efficiency to your communication efforts. Sifting good prospects from the mass of suspects, staying top of mind with strategic partners and activating more advocacy from existing clients can be achieved with a turnkey approach. Learn more at proudmouth.com. The best place to strengthen a client relationship is in the very place where you manage that relationship. BlueSquareToolkit.com has harnessed the best practices of Pareto systems and brought them to life in our easy to use system that is accessible on both your phone and your desktop. Simple technology to uncomplicate your life by creating clarity, accountability, and consistency for your entire team. Build stronger client relationships by tracking and archiving essential information on what matters in your client's life and make yourself indispensable and more referable in the process. Create a more consistent client experience and grow your business with the Blue Square Toolkit. Visit bluesquaretoolkit.com to get your 14-day free trial today. Canaries in the coal mine. Yeah. Uh, now, what about the advisors who say, uh, you know, I, I've had these clients since day one. I, I, I can't. I mean, yeah. my answer to that is you have to always ask yourself, am I doing a client a disservice by maintaining the status quo? Yeah. What elevation, what upgrade can be put into place with a brand within a brand, with allocation to a different person on the team who engages with the same practice and process. I mean, just expand your thinking around what it means to break free of the status quo and, and, and the impact that has on a client. Yeah. They, they will generally always go right to, I can't, I can't disassociate because of this client. Right. And they'll pick, they'll pick in their mind the, the two or three names that they know are the sticking points. And so I will generally say, well, well, just set those three or five aside for a minute. Let's look at everybody else. And then they'll go, okay, we'll, we'll, set, we'll set the outliers aside. Let's, let's look at the other opportunities to disassociate. And let's find a place where there isn't that potential friction in their mind. Let's find a place where they're not utilizing the process. They don't have the complex set of needs or they, they're not taking advice. That's, that's been my, my real go-to these last two or three years is, hey, if somebody's not taking your advice, right, stop beating your head against the wall. Not worth it. All that time that you're taking, the stress level that you and your team are, are under or, or kind of the, the want that you have for them to be taking your advice, and they're just kind of thumbing their nose and saying, no, thanks. Go somewhere else. Right? You're allowed to. How unrewarding is that? Yeah, you've got it. You've, the, the best teams give themselves permission to evolve. And I would even say in this day and age, they give themselves 
what I would call unprecedented permission to evolve because everything is changing so rapidly. They're recognizing, hey, we're, we got to keep moving, right? We got to continue to adapt. That's uh, powerful. And, and what you're confirming there is that the language, the words matter, giving yourself permission, and then how it's positioned, making sure a client in no way, shape, or form views it as a handoff. This is an upgrade. I'm doing you a disservice by not doing this. Um, that, that reinforces branding as well. I want to ask you, I've got so much I need to ask you. Can I have your perspective on the balance between client service and client experience and, and what that does for a team? Client service, how yeah. you react and respond to a need client experience, your habits, rituals, the consistent scheduled approach that you take around what it means to be your client. Can I have your perspective and maybe any feedback or stories around advisors who have brought that to life and what clients have said? Yeah. So we, I do love to spend time when I'm, when I'm face-to-face with a team or I'm, I'm in a presentation, helping, helping validate or make sure that people have their minds around the perceived value of services versus the perceived value of experiences. Um, the research will tell you that, that the final frontier for differentiation, for professional contrast right, in a competitive environment is to focus on the client experience. You look at uh, luxury retail, you look at anything that's experiential, you look at high-end autos, you look at hospitality. The, the last frontier, if you, if you want to differentiate yourself, is to, to invest in elevating the experience because it, that is the part that's most difficult for somebody else, a competitor, to replicate. So that's, that's the final frontier. Okay. Services sits one tier below that services and and there's a perception with services that um, we're going to give good customer service and and the term that I'm using now is anything that's service related I'm looking for a frictionless client experience and if you think about how we consume services and, and when we're really happy with a service provider they've removed all the friction like Amazon is removing the friction from buying products because it's right there. It's on your phone. Like it's just buy now, one click, boom, it's, it's on your doorstep in 24 to 48 hours. Like anything that's service related, we're looking for, for friction free as being, for the most part, kind of how we evaluate, was that a good service? Did I get what I needed and how much pain was associated with it? But then when you get to the experience piece, Consumers are willing to now start to make some trade-offs, right? Because these things are nuanced, they're bespoke, they're interesting, they're intimate, they're creative, and there's a, there's a resource requirement that goes into being able to execute on that. We're not necessarily looking for something now that's friction-free. We're looking for something that's going to make an impact, right? To, to make an impact and have shelf life. Now, we've used those two terms, I think, in some of our in some of our slides and some of our presentations is that when we're, we, when we are in that, um, when we are in that onward quadrant, right? If we're, if we're thinking always on, if we're in that onward quadrant, that fourth quadrant, and we're, we're in the client appreciation space, client recognition, 
it's got to have impact and it's got to have shelf life, right? If it doesn't have impact, if it doesn't have shelf life, then let's not give ourselves credit for making it a great experience. Because when I look back on my life, you look back on your life and you think about the incredible experiences that you had, they're, they're sitting in your brain in a special place because it made an impact, right? And so it gets to occupy that shelf space. There's a, there's a very good strategy writer, this guy named Michael Porter. He wrote a book called On Competition. And in there, he says that the optimal means of achieving a sustainable competitive advantage. If you want a sustainable competitive advantage, there's two ways you do it. You perform different activities than your rivals, or you perform similar activities, but you do them in superior fashion. That's it. Those are, those are the only two ways you differentiate yourself. You're either going to do things that others aren't capable of doing, not willing to do, professional contrast, or you're going to do some of the same activities, build portfolios, put together financial plans, have strategy meetings. You're going to do those same activities, but you're going to do them in superior fashion. The hard part is that it takes resources either route you go. It takes time. It takes focused energy. So I, I love the teams, you know, I, I, I love getting to help teams understand that there's a segment of what we do that, that we want to be good service and frictionless, but there's also a segment for clients where we're not necessarily concerned about the, the friction. We're, we're concerned about making the impact, right? Getting some mental shelf space because we've, we've recognized clients in, in a certain way, the problems that we've solved, you know, critical life moments, all those things that, that I know you and your coaches preach. That's, it's so powerful because that's, that what, that's what makes an impact. But being mindful of the audience in the spirit of that frictionless experience, you know, it's funny. Sometimes your kids become the mentor to the protege. I remember I got off on a, on a rant and I got a little bit long-winded on a family text and one of my kids pushed back and he's, he just put TLDR. Too long, didn't read. And it's, it's like the family equivalent of too many clicks. It's too many clicks to get this product purchase online. So reducing the hoops and the hurdles and the barriers, just liberating people to go live their life. That's what, but, but here's the thing. And I, I really want to, not to get too esoteric, but I, I want to expand on this because competitive advantage, to your point about memories, like what gets someone's attention? What is memorable? The way you conduct yourself either exceeds, meets, or falls below expectations. Two of those three are memorable, exceeding and falling below. Meeting expectations. So, so what's interesting about a fee-for-service, knowledge-for-profit professional who focuses on second and third generation family relationships, you've got to really take a look at the competitive advantage of your value because there's three tiers to it. There's expected value. Okay, so the S&P was down this much, but we're only down this much. Okay, that's expected. You, you know what you're doing. You've got good technical ability. That's expected. You return my phone calls. That's expected. You're responsive. You have a good team. You care. That's expected. 
That's expected value. That's a, a, just a foundation to build on. The second value is, to your point, perceived value. Now, that's nuanced. That's harder to put your finger on. Mm -hmm. But when a client starts to mirror your value back on you, you know, I really like your process. I really like that you're a goals-based professional. You know what matters to me? They're internalizing your value. It, the perceived value goes up. So there's expected value, perceived value, and then there's added value. But it's only added value if it's something they really find to be a value, which is where, of course, form comes into play. You know, just understanding as a client life unfolds and their needs evolve, you're paying tribute in meaningful ways to their, their accomplishments, their milestones, their setbacks. Um, <clears throat> I there's guess a, my point, go. Yeah, there's a, to, to try to make this formulaic, right? The, the experience received minus their expectation equals the brand equity you're creating. So the client experience received less their expectation equals additive to brand. So this is, this is a great way to think about, hey, my clients have an expectation of, of X. We've got to do X plus and everything we do above is additive to brand, right? It's additive to their impression of us because we've exceeded their expectations. And there's a rejuvenation. So, sorry, sorry. You just got me thinking. There's there's a, a point where you have to be mindful about reminding and rejuvenating someone's appreciation for that because amnesia and loyalty fatigue and familiarity can develop where some of that gets taken for granted. So there's like a, a reintroduction, a reframing that's almost done yeah. on an annual basis just to 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 rejuvenate someone's appreciation for that. Yeah, absolutely. So now, now just, just flip it, say customer expectation is X. We only delivered it X minus. What's the implication? That's, that's negative attribution to the brand. So if we're about positive brand attribution in relationships, we, we've got to not only understand expectations, but we've got to exceed them. We, we've, got to, we've got to truly make and keep meaningful commitments. We need to be able to... Uh, remind clients of the good work that that we do. Um, one of my one of my former mentors, a guy named Steve Moore, years ago, mm -hmm. um, he taught me this phrase: "Do great work for clients. Make sure they know about it. Do great work for clients. Make sure they know about it." Perfect bookends. I mean, that is exactly it. Don't be your own best kept secret. So you have good intentions, but make sure there's an appreciation for it. That's very very strong. Yeah. And yeah, he's he's a legend in this space for sure. Let's talk for a moment about systems and process. So we've got more and more leaders of advisory teams that are really embracing the CEO mentality, the HR mentality. Like I got to think what you were just saying there about good intentions, make sure people execute on it, make sure people appreciate it. That has to be process driven. That can't be just like, hey, that's our way. That's our culture. We do things differently. Engaging the team, 
having regularly scheduled meetings to hold people accountable and to assess the the degree of deployment and how people are responding to it that that that's how you wrap that up right how you ensure that that's sure. being brought to life yeah i think maybe a, a way of of adding to that a little different flavor would be how do you build a culture of execution and how how do you build a culture on a team where the the bent is hey we're we're moving forward we're we're getting things done and and what i'm finding and i think you would you would agree with this is the the bigger these businesses are getting in terms of of advisors that are coming together right they're acquiring other books they're recognizing that there's some strength in numbers there's there's numerous layers of complexity that are added right you mentioned the hr piece and managing people and role clarity and whatnot another piece that I think advisors wrestle with is how do I build the culture of the team? How do I, how do I make sure that as we're growing, as we're bringing on new talent, as we're talking in other advisors, how do I make sure that we, we protect this culture that we've created? And if we don't have the right culture, how do we get the right culture? Mm-hmm. And I was, I was flipping through Instagram a few weeks ago and, and I don't, you know, Instagram has their algorithm. And so they start feeding stuff that, that they think you're interested in. And I started to get these little tidbits from coaches, college football coaches, hockey coaches, wrestling coaches. And, and so it's just been this kind of cool feed of interesting things. And there was a, a wrestling coach and somebody asked him about the culture of his program. And he said, well, first thing you need to understand is you don't get the culture that you promote. You get the culture that you practice. You get the culture that you permit. Oh, sorry. You don't get the culture that you proclaim. That's the word that he used. You don't get the culture that you proclaim. You can't just stand on a soapbox and say, this is our culture. He said, you get the culture that you practice, right? that you actually do. You get the culture that you permit. Because if you permit it on your team, it's part of your culture. And you get the culture that you promote, meaning you get the culture that you recognize, that you foster, that you grow. And one of my favorite things is when I see a team that truly embraces that and they realize that, hey, we, we're all in sync in terms of our mentality, our values, our guiding principles. Like we all know that integrity is non-negotiable. We all know that we make and keep meaningful commitments. We know that we exceed client expectations. We know that we have a genuine interest in our people, in our clients, in our community. Like these are, these are these foundational values. I, I love that. The ones where I get really nervous is when I can sense, hey, there's advisors on this team that they're saying one thing, but I know that they're not backing that up. Mm-hmm. Like, I love the advisor who says, yeah, I was here till 7.30 last night because we had to get a bunch of quarterly reports out the door. Like, when the advisor says, I was here, we were doing that, I'm rolling up my sleeves, like I'm, we're doing this heavy lifting versus the advisor says, well, why didn't we get all that done? No, don't ask people to do things that you're not willing to do. That's not the culture that we're looking for. So I don't know about you, but I'm having more culture conversations in part because it's so critical, in part because it's also, I believe, you have a lot of people in the industry who have been in an environment where the culture isn't right for them, and they're looking to plug into a team in whatever role, could be admin all the way up to experienced advisor, they're looking to plug into a team where where there's a cultural fit for them. 
Well, and that you think of the checking of, of the box on that, that check mark fades as the team evolves and expands. I had, yeah. I had a kind of almost a shocking re- revelation with the team. I've been working with this lead advisor for years. I assumed he had internalized some of our core foundational elements. He's in the interlude between organic and scalable growth. He is shifting from B to C to B to B. It's quite fascinating to see it. He brought on his, so his bench strength is expanding. He brought on somebody who we said, no, that's a COO. That, that's somebody that's going to be executing on your process for both addressable audiences, your clients and strategic partners, but also other advisors that you attract and acquire. I just mentioned passingly, I talk about the rule of three. Everything you do three or more times, three or more steps has got to be documented. And I was just throwing that on the table as a reminder it was as if the lead advisor had never heard it before. And I, I said to my, cause he said something like, say that again. What do you mean? And I went, I thought I was talking to the new COO. I'm actually talking to the leader that was not brought to life to the degree he should have. And the, the mindset of that. And we, it led to this conversation about Little's law and, and so, so now I've got the COO and the lead advisor really understanding this is what we're building. Capacity, to your point, the closer you get to your natural capacity, the more things tend to break down. Systems and procedures, don't self-sabotage. That was the conversation about Little's Law. Then we got to McNamara's fallacy. If you can't manage, measure it, you can't manage it. Like It was an incredibly enlightening conversation for me because it realized for me it realized i realized that this is ongoing this is fluid and dynamic and has to be reinforced as the team is growing and their needs become more complex you got nothing i just love it I love our conversations. I'm just, I'm letting it soak in. You know, when, when there's silence in a relationship, if it's uncomfortable silence, that means there's not the level of intimacy and trust, uh, or it's not at a very high level, but if you can just sit with somebody and not talk and be completely at ease with it, that tells you that there's, that it's a great relationship. So I'm happy to just, to reflect on what you've spoken and just internalize it and be like, that's so good. And there's, it just, it's okay. It's okay. If we sit and just reflect for 15 seconds, might not make for the best podcast, but it's great. <laughs> Kevin, I'm looking at my notes and uh, I'd say I've probably gotten to about 25% of what I wanted to uh, cover, but it's still, we're an hour in. So clearly, I want to bring you back again. I'll keep these notes so we're not just restating what we've covered here. But I I want to just remind everybody, you've got access to the Practice Management Index to get clear on your opportunity gaps, but also 
to force you to think through on those key 18 focus areas that we've identified as being commonalities that separate the best from the rest. I would ask you as a, as a significant supplement to that, to reach out to your first trust wholesaler and engage Kevin. I think you've heard enough from him to get a sense for how he sees the world, the purity of what he's trying to accomplish and the relevance and impact that he can have on a substantial team that has ambitions for uh, growth. So Kevin, is that the best way to connect with you is to uh, access you through First Trust Wholesaler? Yep. Yep. Are there any resources that you have also on the advisor portal that uh, could could help uh, provoke sure. this line of thinking? Yeah, there's there's six of us on our team. We all have different video series out on the website. It's organized topically. So if there's a particular topic that you're interested in, uh, you get a log on to the website, get that from your first trust wholesaling team. You can bounce out and you can self-select. I think there's 40 different videos on a variety of topics, everything from uh, next gen all the way to COI engagement. I've got a series of videos on metrics, our, our own internal comparison tool and, and helping advisors better understand the metrics that we are looking at. There's there's a, a, a ton out there for kind of self-help in, in getting going. And then if you identify, hey, we, we would really benefit from a deeper uh, deeper conversation on any of these topics, uh, all of our first trust wholesalers know how to route those inquiries to to our team. Okay, excellent. And is there a uh, video companion to your profile page to make that self-guided where it can it just even as a starting point be just um, a self-awareness exercise for somebody? Yeah, I do not have a video that goes with it, but that's a great suggestion. We could definitely do that. Well, just because I I, I know diagnostically you ultimately want people to come to their own conclusions. It doesn't necessarily have to be your ideas. You're investing previous interactions with other teams into every relationship, but ultimately you want them to come to their own conclusions. So uh, at a a minimum, that profile page has got some very, very thought-provoking questions. Just again, just to expand someone's thinking about what the next five years look like. I look at the last five years and how fast, I think of some of the masterminds we did in Palm Springs three, four, five years ago, a blink of the eye. The next five are probably going to come and go even faster. So if nothing else, I'm hoping that the takeaway here is just a gentle reminder around the importance of working on your business, engaging your team, and being process-driven. So with that, Kevin, terrific. Uh, Have you back to go deeper into this conversation. And any closing comments? Thank you for the opportunity. I love I love these conversations that we get to have. We we get to do them informally, but I love jumping on the podcast with you. You have a, a phenomenal following, which is great. The book is fantastic. So thank you so much for everything you do for First Trust as an organization, but as well as our team um, being a great resource and great partner for us. It never feels like work. It's an absolute pleasure. And I get definitely as much or more out of these relationships than, than your team. So it means a lot to me and thank you for saying so. So Kevin Bishop, thank you very much. Go Kraken. 
Go Kraken. Go Oilers. Come on, we could we could root for each other's teams. We're Pacific Division rivals. But actually, I don't even think we can say rivals. We've only been around for less than two full seasons. So, um, from what I hear, the, the the fans though are embracing the concept of professional hockey in Seattle. Oh yeah, yeah. The games are a lot of fun. Yeah, terrific. Well, I hope to get to a game with right. you soon. Okay, thank you very much. Alrighty. We'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to Always On with Duncan McPherson, where our objective is to enable professionals to always be working on their business and on themselves. Want to learn more about Duncan and his team? Visit ParetoSystems.com. Don't forget to click the follow button below to be notified when new episodes become available. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the hosts and or guests and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of Pareto Systems. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. This podcast is powered by Proudmouth, the influence accelerators. If you're like me and want to spend more time educating people and less time selling, Proudmouth helps turn Main Street experts like you into trusted mainstream authorities. They will help amplify your influence over a growing audience of magnetically attracted fans. Visit Proudmouth.com to learn more.